So, three chapters. So, when we talk about Habakkuk, we talk, really, what we're looking at is that our hope is in Jesus Christ. Now, Habakkuk, remember, prophesied 600 years before Jesus Christ. But what is the subject of the Bible? What is the point of the Bible? It is, from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, it is to reveal Jesus Christ to his people. So, Jesus Christ is our hope. This is what the nation of Judah needed. They needed hope because they were hopelessly lost in their sin and in their rebellion to God. So we talked about the hope we need today. We've talked about last week the faith that we need. The just shall live by faith. Today we're going to talk about the prayer we need today. And Habakkuk ends his prophecy with this prayer that we will look at. Now I'm not going to read the entire chapter to you. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2. And then I'm going to read the end of it, verses 17 through 19. So the need for prayer is ever-present. There's never a time that we do not need prayer. You do realize that, right? The Scripture commands us to pray without ceasing. So the need for prayer is ever-present. But I think sometimes we look around in our world, we live in times, we, we experience circumstances when we feel the need for prayer more. I don't know if we ever need prayer less than other times, but I know this, we feel the need for prayer more than we do other times. And I think as a nation, in the days that we're living in now, I think it's fair to say that there is a great need for prayer in these days that we live in. And the prayer that we are desperate to have answered is the same prayer that the prophet Habakkuk prayed to God in his day. It is the prayer that God would revive his work in the midst of our years and that in wrath God would remember mercy. It is a prayer that faith... Simply put, this is a prayer the prophet prayed that faith would rise up in the hearts of God's people and that the works of God would be once again known. Not just known outwardly, but known here, inwardly, in our hearts and in our minds, in our lives. That is what the prophet prayed for his day. It is what we need. It's the prayer we need today. So let's read the scripture, Habakkuk 3, verses 1 and 2, a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, on Shagianoth. It's really a weird word, it just simply means a song. Some translations actually say, in a song, but the reality is they don't really know exactly what that word means, but that's a pretty good guess. O Lord, I've heard your speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Verse 17. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, 
Though the labor of the olive may fail in the fields, yield no food. Though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet, and he will make me walk on the high hills. To the chief musician with my stringed instruments. So literally, the prophet wrote this prayer, sang this prayer, turned it into a psalm, a prayer that would be recorded for posterity. And he begins this and he says, A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. Habakkuk prays. And the petitions that he lifts up to the Lord. He lifts up to the Lord on behalf of the nation of Judah and the people of God who are under the impending judgment of God at the hands of the Babylonians. So he prays and he's asking God in wrath to remember mercy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the prayer of this prophet that you inspired, Lord, centuries ago. This prayer that was inspired 2,600 years ago, Lord, we still have today, we still read today. And though it's 2,600 years old, it is a prayer just as relevant today as it was in the day of the prophet. It's as relevant in the lives of your people today as it was in the people then. Father, I pray that you would teach us, that you would open our hearts and open our minds to see how desperately we need for you to revive your work in the midst of the years. In these days, in these times right now, God, we pray that you would revive your work in our hearts and in those around us, that your works would be known once again. Father, we ask that you would do this for your glory. That you would grace your church to be that witness for you in the world that would bring glory and honor to your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So his prayer was a song in the form of a psalm, just like the psalms we read in the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is our prayer book. It's our song book put right in the middle of our Bible. And in his prayer, Habakkuk lifts up his heart and he lifts up his voice to the Lord and he appeals to the Lord to remember mercy in the midst of wrath. He appeals to the Lord to once again revive the works of the Lord. And he says in verse 2, he says, O Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid. Remember, Habakkuk made this statement at the beginning of this little prophecy, of this little book, where he says, I set myself. I set myself as a watchman. I set myself upon the rampart or up in the tower. I went to the highest place on the wall and I watched to see what the Lord would say to me. But remember, we said that he didn't literally climb up on the wall of Jerusalem and scale the tower 
he was using a metaphor there. He was putting himself in a position of prayer and of worship. He put himself in a place where he could hear the word of the Lord. And he likened himself to a watchman who was watching to see what the Lord would say. He was waiting for news to know what was going to happen. And so in this prayer, he says, Lord, I have heard your speech. So he's at the end of this prophecy now. He's heard what God has to say. Remember in the very beginning, let me, let me just read this to you. In the very beginning, remember in verse 2, he asked the question, How long, Lord, shall I cry and you will not hear? Even cry out to you violence. He starts out asking this question. And the Lord has answered. And the Lord has shown him what is going to happen. The Lord showed him that God would use the Babylonians to send to Judah, to send to Jerusalem, to execute his judgment upon his people who were in unbelief, unfaithfulness, and rebellion. And the prophet, remember, was appalled that God would use the wicked Babylonians to execute his judgment. But that's what God says he's going to do. And then God says also, he said, that wicked Babylonian nation, they also shall be judged. In other words, they're not going to escape judgment. They will be judged for their wickedness, just like Judah will be judged for her wickedness. And we can read this as history, and it is history, but we should not read it only as history. We should also read it for a, as a warning in our own day, because God is still judging wickedness. God is still judging unbelief. God is still judging nations. The world is still going on. The story is still being written. Yes, Jesus finished the work of redemption on the cross. Yes, Jesus has judged this world and the ruler of this world, but that judgment is still being worked out. The devil is still loose today. The devil is still roaming around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. But yet the Bible also tells us that Satan was paraded in the heavenlies and made an open show of because he was utterly defeated by Jesus. So you might say, well, which is it? Is he defeated or is he ro ro roaming around like a roaring lion? And the answer is yes, he's both of those. The devil is not some free moral agent that is not outside of God's control. I hope you understand that. The devil was created by God and the devil is used by God for God's purposes. The reason we should not fear Satan, the reason we should not fear the devil, is because we belong to Jesus. If you don't belong to Jesus, then you have a reason to fear. But if you belong to Jesus, you have no reason to fear. Because he has already been defeated. He has no power over you. Wednesday night, we read the second letter to the seven churches in Revelation. In the letter to the church at Smyrna, Jesus tells the church, he commends them. There is no rebuke to this church. It's the only one of the seven churches that did not receive a rebuke. 
And Jesus had nothing but condemnation, I mean commendation for them. Yet in that commendation, Jesus says, Satan will throw some of you into prison for 10 days. Be faithful unto death. In other words, Satan's going to throw you into prison for 10 days and some of you are going to die in your persecution. Be faithful even unto death. So, well, that sounds kind of contradictory. If they were so good, then why would God let them be thrown into prison? Why would he let Satan throw them into prison? And it's very specific there. Satan will throw some of you into prison. Because Satan is nothing but God's instrument. That's all he is. And one day when God is finished writing the story, Satan and all who are his will be cast into the lake of fire. His judgment is sealed. His destiny is already sealed. If you are in Jesus... If you are born again today, if you belong to Jesus, your destiny is already sealed. Satan can't do anything to you that God does not allow. He can't throw you into prison unless God says, go throw him into prison. He can't do anything to you apart from what God allows to have happen. And this is what we see here with the prophet Habakkuk. When God tells him, I'm sending the Babylonians to judge my people. And God, we see in history, God raises them up, God gives them power to rule the earth, and then God deals with them just like he's done every other empire and world power. And the prophet says, Lord, I've heard your speech and was afraid. As Habakkuk set himself in a position to hear the word of the Lord, seeking the Lord in prayer. He hears the voice of the Lord by the Spirit of God that is upon him. And the prophet acknowledges the fear of the Lord. The proverb says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And when we see the prophet here, in his place of prayer, seeking the face of God, and we see that he hears the voice of the Lord, and he records the words of God in this prophecy, and he says, Lord, I've heard your speech and was afraid. And in some measure, God's speech and God's word should cause us to have the right kind of fear. The fear that produces wisdom in us. The fear that produces understanding in us. The fear that motivates us in the Lord. I had a thought as, I, as we were worshiping today, actually before the service began. Maybe I had that thought for this very moment. I wrote this down before church began. Our motivation in God cannot remain in our need. It must grow beyond our need into his love and for his glory. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Our motivation in God can't be in, 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 in us being afraid of God or being afraid of going to hell. If your only reason for 
for serving God, if your reason for, for acknowledging God is because you're afraid of going to hell and you don't want to go to hell, that's the wrong reason. You don't want to go to hell. That's a, that's a, that, that's a right fear. That's a right thing to want to avoid. But it, it's not your avoidance of hell. It's not your feel, fear of hell that should motivate you in your life. That can jumpstart you. That can get you going. But that's not going to keep you there. It's not fear that will sustain us. It's love that sustains us. The Bible doesn't say fear never fails. The Bible says love never fails. And if we're serving God out of pure fear, then we're serving him for the wrong reason. And this is why we need to rightly understand what the scripture is teaching us when it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If God is just like one of us, I mean, if God's just another guy out there walking around, yeah, you know. But if we really understand who God is, if we understand the majesty and the glory and the holiness and the righteousness of God, if we could see God for who he is, it would scare us. Just like every episode we see in the Bible, when God opens the eyes of his servants and reveals himself in his glory, Isaiah said, I fell down as one dead. Daniel fell down as one dead. John fell down as one dead. And what does God have to do? God has to come along and he has to say, peace, it's okay. I'm not here to hurt you. I'm here to help you. But when we see God for who he is, there is a fear. And rightly so. The scripture says it's a fearful thing to, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. And do you know that God hates sin? And God hates sin so much that he gave his only begotten son to die so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. If I were to do a survey today of most people sitting in churches and I said, do you hate sin? The overwhelming majority of the answer would be yes. I didn't say, do you ever sin? Because we all sin. I said, do you hate sin? Yes. Do you want to sin? No, but I do. Yeah. You hate sin? Yes, I hate sin. Do you, do you hate sin so much that you would give your only child to die for someone else's sin who hates you? No, you wouldn't. But that's exactly what God did. And if we, if we need a reference point of how much God hates sin, then think about what God did to eradicate sin for his people. He gave his only son to become sin for us and to die in our place. So when the prophet says, Lord, I've heard your speech and was afraid, understand that the prophet has a revelation of God and of who God is that has created in him a fear that is the beginning of wisdom and understanding. And he records this prophecy. The frailty of sinful man in the presence of a holy God should create fear 
in that man. This is man in his weakness hearing the divine voice of the strong and the almighty God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom because it is the acknowledgement of man's true condition in relation to God. When Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up and his train filling the temple, Isaiah saw himself in relation to God. And Isaiah said, I am a man of unclean lips who dwells among a people of unclean lips and fell down as one dead. And an angel had to come and lift him up and put a coal from the altar to his lips. The revelation of the Lord allows us to see ourselves in the light of his glory and in the light of his holiness. The revelation of the Lord by the Spirit through prayer, through meditation, through study in the Scripture creates in us an awe, a fear of his majesty, a reverence of who God is. A reverence of his majesty, of his glory, and of his holiness. It reminds us of his grace that allows us to enter his presence. It is the grace that invites us in to the majestic, glorious, holy presence of God. It's not because we have earned a spot. It's not because we deserve a spot. It is because Jesus has paved a way for us to come by his blood. And his blood has washed us and made us clean and allows us to come into the very presence of God, to the very throne of grace. It reminds us of God's grace that allows us to enter his presence. We enter his presence by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and there is no other way for us to enter into God's presence. And the the prophet, he says, Lord, I've heard your speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. Make your work known. Remember what the prophet said in the beginning of his prophecy. When he's talking to God, when he's questioning God, And he says, how long, Lord, shall I cry and you will not hear, even cry out to you violence and you will not save? Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention. Therefore, the law is powerless and justice never goes forth. So what is the prayer of the prophet? Lord, Revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, Lord, make your work known. The prophet asked God to revive his work in the midst of the years, for God to make his work known. In the midst of the years, what does that mean? We can speculate. Obviously, he's talking about the years immediate that he's living in, that he's prophesying in, in the midst of the years, certainly refers to the past, and it certainly refers to the present in relation to Habakkuk in his time, in his day. 
It speaks of the generations of unbelief and the generations of rebellion and unfaithfulness. It speaks of the years of coming judgment and exile because that's already been revealed to the prophet. God's already showed him what's coming. And the prayer of the prophet is, Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. It's a plea for God to move in the hearts of his people. This is really what this prayer is about. This is not a prayer for God to show miracles and to show wonders and signs. This is a prayer for God to do something in the hearts of his people. Because all these things that happen outwardly mean nothing if there is not a miracle that takes place inwardly in our heart. This is why Jesus, when he preaches the Sermon on the Mount, reveals all the hypocrisy, pulls the cover back on all the hypocrisy, on all those religious leaders who looked so good on the outside, but God could see the reality of who they were on the inside. And he says, Moses says that if you commit adultery, you've broken the commandment. But I say, if you look after a woman with lust in your heart, you've broken the commandment. Moses says, thou shalt not murder. But I say, if you say to your brother, Raka, you have committed murder in your heart. That should scare us. That should want to make us, as we sang today, create in me a clean heart. You can't buy it with gold. You can't earn it through your works. God's got to give it to you, but you can desire it. And in your desire, you can pray for it. You can seek after it. So the prophet asked that the works of God be revived in the midst of the years. So this prayer is looking to the past, it's speaking to the present, and it even speaks to the future. Because the prophet knows that the people of God are going into exile, and we know now that that exile, it was 70 years. And they endured, and they went through, and they came out of that exile, and it's all history now. But I believe this prayer looks forward past the time of exile. I believe this prayer looks forward into the midst of the years that will bring forth the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. It looks even further beyond to the consummation of all things in Christ at His return. In the midst of the years, this spans the time from God's first promise to His people to the consummation of all things in Christ. The coming of Christ Jesus reveals the truth that God's word and God's work will prevail over all things. Don't think for one moment the devil can stop anything that God desires to do, that God wills to do, because the devil can't do anything to stop the purposes of God. The devil is absolutely under the control of God. 
If you think that we're in this cosmic battle of good and evil, that's Eastern mysticism. That's yin and yang. You know what yin and yang is? You ever seen that little circle with the half white and half black? That's yin and yang. You know what the theology of yin and yang is? Yin and yang is equal but opposite forces. There's an equal force of evil fighting an equal force of good that brings balance to the universe. So it sounds so good and so spiritual, doesn't it? We've got to keep balance in the universe. You see this in Star Wars. You see this in a lot of these fantasy movies now, and they're great fun to watch. I love to watch them. They're very entertaining. But please don't get your theology from those movies because it's paganism, it's heathenism, it's anti-Christ. There is no such thing as an equal but opposite good and evil force fighting in the universe. There is the one true and living God who rules over everything, including the devil. And the devil has absolutely no say in what God does. None whatsoever. None whatsoever. This prayer looks to the consummation of all things in Jesus Christ. It looks to the coming of Jesus and the work of God that will prevail and has prevailed over everything. The prophet prays for the work of God to be revived because he sees the sin of the nation. It appears the promise of God and the work of God and the people of God has ceased, but it has not. It looks to a lot of people today that God is nowhere to be found, that the work of God is not taking place, that somehow God has fallen asleep on his throne and he has no clue what's happening. That is a lie from the pit of hell. Just because you can't see and you can't discern and you can't understand what God is working in the world today doesn't mean he's not. And it's absolute arrogance for us to think. To think that. To believe that. It's unfaithful. It's not faith. Faith knows that God is never not working. Faith knows that God is always working. Faith knows that it, regardless of what I might see or might not see, God is the sovereign in control, working out his plan and purpose, writing his story still. And you and I are not the stars of his story. He's the star of his story. We're just supporting actors with varying parts. He doesn't exist for us. We exist for him. He created us for his glory. God is faithful and he will faithfully complete all he has begun in his people in all of creation. And this is why we should never, ever lose hope. The Lord has begun the work and he will complete it. Jesus hung on the cross and uttered these words, it is finished. There is one sense that everything is already done. It's already finished. It's already completed. Yet the work goes on. The story is still being written. Souls are still being saved. People are still being birthed and brought into the world and people born again for the glory of God. And it will continue until God says it's going to stop. Some people see, think that's going to happen any time. Maybe it will. But it could also go on 
for many more generations. And if we're going to err, let's err on the side of preparing to live many more generations in this earth. Raising up sons and daughters, making disciples, planting trees, and planning for the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Doing what Jesus commanded us to do in his prayer, praying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That means we need to be doing on earth the things that are in heaven. We need to be living on earth as things are in heaven. In other words, we need to be advancing the kingdom of God. The kingdom is here. It's within us. It needs to be manifest all around us. And this is what the prophet was praying. Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In other words, we could say it like this. The prophet was saying, Lord, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's in essence what the prophet was praying. And the coming of Jesus reveals the truth that God's word and God's work will prevail over all. And this is why we do not lose hope as a people. The Lord has begun the work. The Lord will complete the work. The prophet prayed that the work be manifest, that the work be known in the midst of the years. And we know that the work that God is doing is never stopped. It's always moving forward toward that glorious day when the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will fill the earth, even as the waters cover the sea. This is the very thing God promises us through the words of the prophet Habakkuk. Habakkuk 2.14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The language is very specific. The earth will be filled. It's not the earth might be filled. It's not we hope the earth will be filled. It is the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. How much of the seas are covered by water? How much? Thank you, Ephraim. All of them. (laughs) All of them. The glory, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. You know what that means? That means there's not a square inch of planet earth that the knowledge of the glory of God will not cover. That's a promise God gives us. In our unfaithfulness, in our unbelief, because we're so moved by the things we see and the things we hear and the things we read, we doubt, we wonder whether that's going to happen. Yet God has promised it. Just because it doesn't happen when we want, how we want, just because it doesn't happen in our lifetime, does not mean it's not going to happen. Habakkuk wrote his prophecy 600 years before Jesus, crying out for God to save his people. It was 600 years before the incarnation of Jesus. It's been 2,000 years since the incarnation of Jesus. And we're still praying, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
you realize there's been generations of people that have sold everything because they thought Jesus was coming back next Sunday. 88 reasons why Jesus is returning in 1988. Oops, guess what didn't happen in 1988? But guess what was published the next year? 89 reasons Jesus is returning in 1989. Oh, guess what didn't happen in 1989? The Jehovah's Witnesses have predicted the return of Jesus so many times they've, they've now reduced it down. He had a secret coming in 1914. It was invisible. It was secret. Nobody knew it. Why don't we just stick with the Bible? Why don't we just do what the prophets have done, what the people of God have done for centuries? Let's pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's live accordingly, let's work accordingly, let's believe accordingly. And when the Lord comes, he comes. I told someone the other day, well actually I went to the dinner last Tuesday night at... uh, watch and pray. Of course, you know, you got people of all kinds of theological beliefs there. I mean, they're all Christians, but I sat down next to a very delightful uh, lady, and uh, she found out I was a pastor, and she looked at me, and she goes, do you think the rapture's going to happen anytime? And the, the reality is, no, actually, I don't. <laughs> I don't. I don't think it's going to happen anytime. I think there's a whole lot of work left to do on this earth And we shouldn't even be thinking about raptures. So I told her, I said, you know what Martin Luther's answer was when they asked Martin Luther, what would you do if you knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow? And Martin Luther's answer was, I would plant a tree. I would plant a tree. Kind of sounds like a weird answer, doesn't it? But it's really not. Because you know a lot of Christians think we're going to get raptured out and live in heaven and float around in heaven. But do you know where the Bible says we're going to live for eternity? We're going to live on this earth. We're going to rule and reign with Jesus on this earth. Martin Luther said, if I knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow, I'd plant a tree today. Because you know how long that tree's going to grow? It's going to grow for eternity. The prophet gives us the promise. The Lord gives us the promise that the glory... The knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. This is the work of the Lord. The prophet is asking God to revive. That the knowledge of the glory of the Lord would be manifest throughout all the earth through the faith manifest in the hearts of God's people. Our Lord and His work must be manifest in the hearts and in the lives of God's people. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. It's interesting that Habakkuk does not ask for God to avert his wrath, but to remember mercy in the midst of his wrath. Habakkuk knows that judgment, that the judgment of God must come upon sin. And that is so necessary that God sent his son. And God poured the wrath of sin upon his very son. 
That prophet knew that God's wrath would come upon the nation of Judah, but he prayed that God in the midst of wrath would not forget mercy. This teaches us that even in the midst of the bitter reality of God's judgment, there is the sweet reality of God's mercy. This is what Jesus on the cross teaches us and demonstrates us. This is the hope that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The prophet prays, in wrath remember mercy, and God does remember. God remembers in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, And in the wrath that was poured out upon Jesus, God remembers mercy. This is why we have hope today in Jesus. We are constantly in need of God's mercy. And He is constantly providing it for us in Jesus Christ. And like everything else in God, mercy is accessed through faith. Through faith given to us by grace, we have come to receive God's mercy, even when we deserved His wrath. And when we consider that Jesus Christ was crucified for us, we can know that in wrath, God remembers mercy. Because He did so in the cross. And even in the midst of trials and tribulations that we encounter in this world, we see the mercy of God. Paul writes this in his second letter to the Corinthians, reminding us of the eternal weight of glory that's being produced in us through all that we endure in this world. 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18, Paul writes, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, But the things which are not seen are eternal. Did you hear me? The things which are seen are temporary. But the things which are not seen are eternal. Stop looking at temporary things and judging the world and judging God's work by the temporary things that we can see. Fix your eyes on the eternal. The things that are not seen but are Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. What the Apostle Paul pins in his letter to the Corinthians is the very thing the prophet Habakkuk was praying for the people of God. It was a prayer for God to revive his work in the midst of his people, that even in the midst of judgment and wrath and fiery trial, the people of God would know and trust the works of God that are bringing to pass the promises of God, that faith working through love, would bear all and endure all and know all that God has given in His Word, in His promise, that we would know all that God has given to us in Jesus Christ. The prayer of the prophet was for God to revive His work, and the revival of God's work begins with faith, and it ends with faith. The work of God is to believe in Him whom He sent. This is what Jesus said to those seeking the works to do the works of God. John 6, 28 and 29. This is when Jesus is multiplying loaves and fishes. He declares Himself to be the bread of life. 
And the people saw the miracles of Jesus and they said, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. The work of God is faith. The salvation of God's people has always been by grace through faith. The prayer of the prophet was for God to revive his work in the midst of the years. It is a prayer for faith to arise in the hearts of God's people. That was the work desperately needed to be revived then. It is the work that desperately needs to be revived today, in our day, in our time. That faith would rise up in the hearts of God's people today. The prayer for God to revive his work and to make it known has its answer in the faith of God's people. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, Hebrews 6.11. Faith working in the hearts and the lives of God's people is the answer to our prayer for God to make his work known. I'm sorry, Hebrews eleven six. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Through faith, the work of God is revived, and the work of God is made known when faith is manifest in the midst of God's people. The revival of God's work is the revival of faith in our hearts. As we trust in Christ, the mercy of God fills our life. Jesus took God's wrath upon himself so that all who trust in him would be saved. And we are saved by grace through faith. And faith, the scripture says, comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. This is why we encourage you every week, avail yourself to the Bible reading challenge. Avail yourself to the tools and the means by which you can fill your heart and fill your mind with God's word. Because faith comes by hearing. Faith is not what you're going to get because you wish you had it. Faith is going to be what you get as you pour God's word into you. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And God will grow your faith through many different ways, but he's not going to grow it apart from his word. He will not. Through prayer And through the word, faith comes, and the work of the Lord is revived. This is not a linear formula. This is the spiritual truth that's interwoven into the fabric of all that God is constantly doing. We want to think in these linear ways. Well, if I do A and B, it's going to equal C. That's not the way God works. That's not the world of God. Some things work that way. But when I say to you that prayer and the word, through prayer and the word, faith comes. This is just a spiritual truth. And God brings it to be and he brings it to bear in all sorts of ways. In all sorts of circumstances throughout your life. God knows how to motivate you when you're not motivated. God knows how to encourage you to motivate yourself. God wants us, I was talking to someone yesterday, it's just like these little babies. Until they get old enough, somebody's got to feed them. Somebody's got to put food in their mouth. Somebody's got to put food on their plate. But it reaches a point to where we learn how to feed ourselves. It's not that we never need God. 
But we learn how to feed on God for ourselves. And when you get old enough to feed on God for yourselves, if you choose not to feed on God, your faith is not going to grow. God may put you in a circumstance that's going to motivate you to read His Word, to pray His Word. But how much better is it if we just develop those habits? Like how many meals do you miss? How many, how many people have to tell you, don't forget to eat breakfast, don't forget to eat lunch, don't forget to eat your snack? I mean, sometimes that may happen, but for generally, we know the times of day that we need to eat, that we want to eat. Not just need to eat, we want to eat, right? I mean, I don't know. I'm not talking for you guys, but like me, I just want to eat all the time. If you don't believe me, ask my family. I would eat all the time if I could, but I can't unless I want to die an early death. That's the way it should be with the Word of God. And we don't need someone to prompt us, to motivate us, to challenge us. We don't need God to put us in an extreme circumstance that's going to drive us to desperation, to break open the Word. Feeding on God's Word ought to be just like feeding on our food that we eat every day. We just do it because it's what we do. We desire it, we need it, we do it. Verse 17 through 19, the end of this prayer. Here's the declaration of the prophet. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail and the field yield no food, Though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet. He will make me walk on my high hills. And I'm not talking about shoes there, ladies. The work of God is not always apparent to the eye. But it is always known by faith. Your eye may not see the work of God, but faith knows God is always working. Even when it seems the work of God is not revived, my eyes and my mind and my stomach may tell me one thing, but faith tells me the truth. I will trust in the word of God. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. God has promised to save his people. God has declared it through his word. God does not always save his people from the immediate consequences of sin, just like he did with Judah. Judah suffered the invasion of the Babylonians. And everyone in that city suffered in some measure. But God will always save his people from the eternal consequence of sin and the eternal consequence of death. To the church at Sardis, be faithful even unto death. Yeah, you're going to die, but don't worry. The second death has no power over you. Even when we cannot see the work of God, when we, when we want and how we want, We have reason to rejoice in the Lord. We have reason to joy in the God of our salvation. When we are weak, the Lord is our strength. When we stumble, He will make our feet like deer's feet so that we will not fall. We will walk on the high hills and we will not be afraid. 
because the Lord upholds us and the Lord sustains us. This is our God. This is our Savior. This is the promise we have in Him. This is the work of God in the midst of our life, in the midst of our years, making manifest our faith in Jesus Christ, who saves us to the uttermost, who saves all who put their trust in Him. This is the prayer of the prophet. Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. Lord, cause faith to arise in the hearts of your people. It is what we need today, I pray, is is what you have. And if you don't have it, ask for it, pray for it, seek it. God will answer you. God will give it to you if you seek it from a heart of faith. He will. He has promised. Let's get ready to come to the table of the Lord. Let's stand. Here's your charge. It's the charge the Scripture gives us to pray without ceasing. We looked at the prayer of the prophet. It's a prayer that's just as relevant today for us in our time. Pray without ceasing. Trust always. Work hard. Live fully. Jesus came that we might have life and have it to the full. Don't live halfway. Live fully for Jesus and laugh often for the joy of the Lord is our strength. God sits in the heavens and and laughs, the Bible says, so surely here on this earth we can laugh and rightly so and find joy in God who is our strength. Be at peace He has already won for us the victory. In wrath, he has remembered mercy. So rejoice in the Lord always. And with the Apostle Paul, I say again, rejoice. Tell someone the good news. Go out and preach the gospel with your life, with your words, and with your actions. Be fruitful and multiply in every way imaginable. And tell of his goodness and bring a friend or bring a stranger to church with you Next week, it may be the first step of making a disciple. Have the courage to have that conversation and tell someone the good news. You don't know how hopeless or how desperate they could be. And you could be, your words could be the difference between life and death for them. Somebody has to tell the gospel. Somebody's got to preach it. And if it's only preached from pulpits on Sundays, then we're not getting the job done. That's why God sends you out every week to proclaim His good news. Amen.